if more of you means less of me, take everything. Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. As we were singing on this morning, this passage came to mind. So this is the the sermonette, but I felt like I couldn't leave it to myself, so I just wanted to share it with the family on this morning. He needs nothing from us, and the fact that we can plead, appeal to the mercies and grace of God to take everything as though I had anything to offer the Creator but that he would graciously receive our spiritual worship and use us for his service, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Give him everything. No reservations. No hesitation. I just felt like there was an altar as we were singing and we were just willing to lay everything down for the Lord. And I believe that's fitting for where we're getting ready to go this morning because if we're not willing to lay everything down, then what God calls us to may seem too high a price. But if we can recall the cross for the one who gave all, I will gladly give all that I could possibly give to a God who would love me like that. I really do wish sometimes that I can articulate it in the way that I feel it in my soul because as I think about giving God everything, you know, it may appear that I had something to offer, but even preaching the gospel, it's like, Lord, would you dare to use somebody like me? The most humbling thing to make yourself available for God to use you knowing that he doesn't need you but because of his love. I mean, that's a God worth giving up everything for. I pray we believe that on this morning. I almost feel like preaching Romans 12, 1. We're going to be in Exodus, continuing from chapter 21, verse 33, and going through chapter 22, verse 15. If you were here with us last week, you might remember that we're going through our series within the series titled Family Formation. We're looking at the rules that God gave to his people, the children of Israel, at Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And what we're seeing as we looked at Exodus 19 a little bit last week is that these rules were purpose for relationship. God was teaching his people how to be in relationship with him, with each other, and with others. And by maintaining these rules, God let his people know that they would be his representatives to the nations, that others would be able to see the love of God and be drawn to that love. And last week, we looked at some of chapter 21, and what we saw is that God's people don't show partiality. Because everyone 
was made in the image of God. Even those who would reject God are still valued and loved by God. Therefore, as people of God, we don't show partiality. We love everyone. The brothers and sisters, but also those who would consider themselves our enemy. This week, we'll be looking at the fact that righteous relationships require reconciliation. And we're going to dive a little bit more into look at what it looks like, what it means to be a people of reconciliation. If you're anything like me, human, uh, this word is going to challenge. It's going to stretch. It may even hurt just a little bit. So my prayer is that you would at least know that I love you all. But what's getting ready to go down is not me. So you better make sure that you're ready to give him everything. Before we dive in, let's pray together. Father, we're abundantly grateful for your word. And that you do not call us to give everything. But you first demonstrated your love to us by giving everything. And now you're calling us to follow in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior. So it's my prayer this morning that you would speak to us and through us, that we might see rightly this captivating, life-changing love that was demonstrated through our Lord and Savior, and that we would be able, willing, to give everything, and that you would use us for your glory. Speak to us this hour, Father, as only you can. Encourage, challenge, change our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 21, starting at verse 33. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another's, So that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox. And for sheep, for sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution for the best, from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. 
If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall make no restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beast, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. It's the word of the Lord. The word of God is good all by itself. Because of the English translation, a very clear point could be missed in today's text. In the Hebrew translation, there's one word that's repeated 14 times in the passage that was just read. This word, shalom, has been repeated 14 times. It's been translated four different ways in today's text. Restoration, repay, pay, and restitution. All are the same Hebrew word, shalom. This word means amend, to make good for it. And what we see as we read through this text and the repetition of this word is that God is making a pathway for his people to make good for their error. The Lord says that if you error, if you make a mistake, you can make good for it. You can restore and be restored to right relationship with your brother and your sister. And so this opportunity to make good on an error is extended to those who make mistakes, whether it be negligence or accidental. We see in the opening part of the passage that was read that if you open a pit or you dig a pit and you don't cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it and dies, that you can repay. You can give some money, you can give a donkey, you can give an ox. You don't have to just be severed in relationship, you can restore that which you had mistakenly seen killed because you didn't cover the pit. It says if your ox butts another and kills it, I can't control this wild beast. It's pretty big and its horns are pretty wild, so it killed your ox. My bad. We'll split that one. We'll have meat for a year minimum, and then we can sell the other one. We'll split it. See, we can, I can repay. I can right my wrong. I can make good for it. That was my fault. Didn't mean to see that happen. I can restore right relationship. And we continue reading on, and we can see if you start a fire, trying to control this fire and contain it, and it happens to catch on a thorn or a thistle, you know, that's just like putting fuel on it, and it just whoosh, takes off and gets away from me and burns someone's entire field. Ah, that's, 
It's my bad again. I don't know if we need to be in the same community with that person. If they keep on doing stuff like that, my bad. I'm going to give you a whole field. I can restore. I can repay. Because that was an accident that I made. Now, some of us may say, well, you messed around and messed up. No, I don't want anything from you. Just get out. No, the Lord says, we are a people of reconciliation. That person should have the opportunity to repay for their wrong. But it's not just for those who make mistakes accidental or as a result of negligence. The Lord, through these rules that he gives to his people, also creates a pathway for those who make mistakes, if you can call it a mistake, maliciously. Right? He says to the man who steals, that's not a oops, my bad, I got your ox. No, you just took my ox, my goat, my sheep. That's messed up. And I don't want to have anything to do with you, one might think. But God says, no, if someone steals from you, don't kill them, don't cut them off. They have an opportunity to make good for it. Now, they're making good is not ox for ox. You got to get five ox for one ox. So you better think before you go stealing somebody's ox and get caught. Because if you didn't have one ox, where are you going to get five from? But you can repay. You got to figure it out. You should never stolen the first place. There's a penalty. Right? However, there is still an opportunity to be restored to right relationship. So we see here God's grace and his mercy telling his people. Now, again, we need to remember this is God speaking now to Moses and through Moses to the people of God, giving them these rules that they are to obey so that they can honor him and live in right relationship with him. And here we're seeing God is saying in order to be in right relationship with him, we'd have to understand this from the text that he is not requiring perfection. If he was, then there'd be no opportunity for you to right your wrong. You're like, you know what? You messed up. Bye. Good, good night. Like, no, he said, you know what? You messed up here. Here's a pathway to right your wrongs. I know your frame, your dusty self. You're going to mess around. You're going to mess up. And I'm creating a pathway for you to right your wrongs. And that's such an encouragement, I would imagine, for us all unless anybody in this room has achieved perfection. Right. We all need a pathway to shalom, to be able to make good for the error of our ways. But we also need to understand something in making restitution or restoring or repaying or paying for some errors that we made. I first must acknowledge that I made a mistake. And then... I must repent, turn from that which I was doing that was wrong, and turn to that which God has called me to do. So in order for the person to be able to pay restitution, they first have to repent and acknowledge that they've done a wrong. If the thief is not going to acknowledge that they stole, then why are they going to get five ox if they weren't willing to pay for one? But because they acknowledge the error of their ways. They're willing to repent and be restored to right relationship. But now as we continue to read through this text, we'll also see that God doesn't only give rules for the person who wronged their brother or sister. He also gives rules to the one who was wronged. And what he says to the one who was wronged is that you cannot retaliate. Verses 2 and 3a, chapter 22. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies... There shall be no blood guilt for him, 
But if the son has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. Now, again, if you remember last week, the Lord made it very clear that if you kill somebody, you would pay life for life. But here now, the Lord is saying, if someone breaks into your house to steal your possessions and you strike them while they're stealing from you and they die, no blood guilt for you. You do not have to pay the price for killing your brother or sister. They were stealing and they got caught in the act and you in self-defense were defending your property and they died. However, the Lord goes on to say that if the sun should rise on them, it means you didn't catch them in the act. Found out later, oh, it was that person over there that stole from me. I got a bone to pick with them. I'm going to let them know something about themselves. And now you're going to handle this situation in your own strength. The Lord says that then blood guilt will be on you. You are now held accountable for killing your brother and sister. In other words, when I defended self-defense, no blood guilt. But when I retaliated, premeditated, decided that I was going to go and handle this situation on my own, now you are at odds with God because you took matters into your own hands. And the Lord continues to communicate this in verses 9 through uh, 10 and 11 of chapter 22, where he says that if there's a breach of trust where somebody sees that you stole their ox or you're accused for stealing their goat, you say, hey, there it is. That was my cloak. They took it. The Lord still doesn't say, so go ahead and take it back. No, he says, take the case before God. And by saying take the case before God, he's saying take it to the priest and let the priest judge is what it's communicating. So take the case before God and let God be the judge. And whomever God condemns, whoever is found guilty, that person still won't be cut off or killed. That person will be able to pay double. They'll be able to be restored. But you can't retaliate and go ahead and snatch your cloak or take your ox back. And the Lord, again, even goes on to let us know that you cannot retaliate if you've been wronged. That if someone has uh, kept your goods and lost it for whatever reason, you can now go before the priest. That person makes an oath. And if they are found to not be guilty because they didn't kill your animal or steal your animal, then the Lord requires the person who has been wronged to accept the oath. So not only can you not retaliate, you also have to receive the restitution. You have to receive the oath that's given. The Lord very clearly is letting us know that if we are going to be in right relationship, that we have to be a people who repent for their wrongs, but we also have to be a people who don't retaliate when wrong. We have to be a people who are willing to forgive those who have wronged us. This is the rule that God has given to his people. And just so we're clear, understanding what a rule means is that if this is a rule that's given, you are expected to follow this rule. If you break this rule, you are disobeying God. So even the person who has been wronged does not have a leg to stand on in going before God and saying, but they stole from me. But I required of you to not retaliate. I required of you to forgive. So you're just as wrong if you retaliate and kill your brother or you retaliate and steal back what has been stolen from you. Now we can read over this text and see that these are the rules that God gave to his people that were to cause them to be a holy nation, a set apart people, different from all other people groups in the world. You could think that's Old Testament. So that's clearly rules for them. 
And some of that is true. Because I don't imagine I'm going to go into any of your houses and accuse you of stealing my goat. <laughs> so I get that. But the principles are the same. Because we serve a God who's unchanging. So God is still forming his family. And he's teaching us how to be a people of God so that we can be representatives of God to other people. And the Lord requires the same thing. He requires us to be a people who are willing to repent. Meaning that if you have come to Jesus Christ and accepted him as your Lord and Savior, the Lord still doesn't look at you and say, you better be perfect or the moment you mess up, I'm going to cut you off. Not what he says. But he does say that if you are going to walk with me, the moment you have erred and you are acknowledging it or you are now aware of it, you better repent. And Jesus teaches this to his disciples. Matthew chapter 5. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew's first recording of one of Jesus' major teachings. We see Jesus calling his disciples to himself so that he could teach them how they are to be his people. Jesus forming his family. Here he says in verses 21 through 24, you have heard that it was said to those of old. He's talking about Exodus chapter 20, 21, 22, and 23. I just feel like that baby saying amen. (laughs) Keep it coming. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Jesus tells his disciples that if you are offering a sacrifice to God, and you are aware that you have offended, you have wronged your brother or your sister, go, leave the altar Leave your sacrifice and first, in other words, top priority, be reconciled to your brother. Now, to really appreciate this radical thought that Jesus is sharing, you'd have to go and read through all of Leviticus. But for your sake, I'll just give you Leviticus 1 through 7. And go read over that later because you really couldn't fully appreciate it not knowing the sacrificial system. You don't come to the altar and make a sacrifice to God because you just think, oh, you know what? I have nothing else to do. Had some extra cows, and I wanted to give a couple of them up. No. When you go to the altar, it's to give a guilt offering, a sin offering, a peace offering, a vow offering. It's a sacred and holy time, a very sincere and sweet moment of exchange between you and your creator. And Jesus, God the Son, is saying that you, if you have offended your brother or your sister, Your top priority is to go and be reconciled, to go and make good for it. This word reconciled means change or exchange. And it's specifically speaking to a change or exchange from enmity 
to friendship. In other words, two parties that are at conflict with one another are now coming together for meaningful change. Just highlight that word because we're going to come back and touch on it in just a moment. Meaningful change. Go and be reconciled first if you have offended your brother or your sister. And just so we can paint this picture rightly, I won't unpack it the way that I feel it, but I just want to touch on a few things that Jesus was talking about in verses 21 through 23 here because to understand, okay, for murder, I get it. That's a big deal. I better go and repent. No, Jesus says, if you are angry with your brother, and what Jesus is speaking to here is a fleshly, sinful anger. It's an anger that's focused on punishing the offender, retaliating, holding a grudge. If you are looking to retaliate, if you are angry with your brother, sinful anger, go and repent. Be reconciled with your brother or your sister first. If you insult your brother or sister, this word in the Greek is racha. It means if you have offended, if you call your brother or sister a name, the word means empty, but it's an expression of contempt. So it's calling you empty-headed. We would use the word imbecile. If I call my brother or sister an imbecile, then I have to go and repent be reconciled. I have offended my brother or my sister. I mean, this thing right here weigh on you in a different kind of way because we think name calling is cool. As long as I don't slash your tires, not a problem. But if I talk about you that way, well, then you just got to accept that because you made me mad. Jesus goes on to say, if you so much as call your brother or sister a fool, the Greek word here for fool is moros, which is the root word for the English terms moron or moronic is to say dull. The expression that I've heard and sadly have used before coming into the fullness of the understanding of God's word is that person's not the sharpest tool in the toolbox. Oh, so you're calling your brother or sister a moron? Now, I can't even make light of it right now. Because if I understand it rightly, God is saying that's such a significant offense that you should leave the altar and go and be reconciled with your brother. Apologize and ask them to forgive you. He expects that of us. See, this is not an Old Testament concept. This is a concept that's birthed out of the heart of God. He expected it from his people of old, and he expects it from his people today. We should not be looking to retaliate against someone when they have wronged us. We should not be looking to speak ill of our brother and sister. I may disagree with you, but there's nothing that you should do or could do that would cause me to speak ill of you because you are a child of God. And the Lord expects us to treat each other as such. Be reconciled if you speak to your brother or sister in such away and everything in between from name calling to murder if you are hurting your brother or sister you need to repent Jesus requires that of us but again not only does the word tell us that we need to repent when we have wronged someone the word also gives us clear instruction of how we are to behave when we are wronged by someone in Matthew 
unpacking some more of Jesus' teachings, looking at chapter 18. I'm going to do a little bit of reading here because Jesus did such a great job with his parable. I'm not going to try and summarize it. I just want to read it because this is some truth that we need to grab a hold of. And if you just hear from me, you probably will ignore it. Hear from Jesus. Well, take it and do with it what you will. Verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, wrong me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Peter's thinking, as many as seven times? That's a lot. And he says, three probably is enough, but do you want me to go all the way to seven? Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And not that you get to 78 and say, okay, that's the last time I forgive you for that. No, if you can count past 30 of forgiving somebody, it's like, all right, you got some problems. Like, you don't see the speck or the beam in your eye. So Jesus is saying you should forgive continually, repeatedly. Like, How, Jesus, do you expect someone to do this? Jesus makes a great business case. I'm going to read this parable. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew 18 and read along with me. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, he, what, had, been, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should, you, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Not lip service, meaningful change. In other words, what Jesus is teaching through this parable is because you have been forgiven an insurmountable debt, you should be one of, if not the most merciful person walking the face of the earth. You're right. That person doesn't deserve to be forgiven of their debt. And neither did you. So how are you going to leave the presence of your master with a debt that is to the nth degree larger than anything that anybody ever owed you? 
And they're going to look and say, you know what? Condemn you. Because I stole your ox? You were supposed to go to hell. But Jesus was willing to lay down his life. What wrong can somebody do to me that I should expect full payment before I forgive them? When considering the wrong that I've done to God. And that he would send his only begotten son to pay the price for me. After receiving that kind of freedom, that kind of exchange from enmity to friendship, I'm expected now, required, dare I say, to do the same. And Jesus, Jesus, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, he says the same thing. That happened to that servant in the parable, it's going to happen to you and to me. Because God still has the same expectation of his people. That we would be a people of reconciliation. We would not be a people who look to stay at odds against one another. If I have wronged you, I repent. If I have been wronged by you, I forgive. Why? Because of the love of God in my life. Before we tie it all together, just want to make sure we see how Jesus ups the ante. Because in the previous passages, we were talking about how we're to behave and respond to brothers and sisters in the faith. That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5. He was talking about the disciples. That's what he's speaking of in Matthew 18. He's talking about those who have come to Christ. But that's not his only expectation is that we as believers would treat other believers with this kind of love. Jesus expects it to extend far and wide when we understand the ridiculousness of his sacrifice for us and how we could never truly earn it. Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 27. This is Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, sharing some more of Jesus' teaching. And Matthew speaks to the same things. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And listen, and you will be sons of the Most High. 
for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Jesus says that if you love your enemies this way, you will be sons and daughters of the Most High. In other words, you will be behaving as your father because he shows mercy to the ungrateful and the evil. And everybody in this room is thinking, amen, and thank you, Lord, because I was a part of the ungrateful and the evil until he showed mercy on my life. And so it wouldn't seem far-fetching to think that I should show that same kind of mercy to someone who doesn't deserve it. So not just to my brother and sister who may wrong me, but even to my enemies, to the one who is despitefully using me. I mean, it's not even close to an accident. It's not a lapse in judgment. You are meaning to try to make my life miserable. Love them is what Jesus says. Love them the way that the Lord has loved you, even if they're ungrateful and even if they're behaving evil. See, this is not some little light and easy word, but it's God's word. And we need to wrestle with it well because it has not changed. And if we can be honest, some of us may hold on to grudges. We may feel the need to retaliate. And listen, just because you did not go and slash somebody's tires or do something silly. I know, I don't know why I got slashing tires in my head. Traumatic experience, maybe. But even if you didn't go do that, the fact that you're harboring hate in your heart is still going to cause separation between you and your God. The fact that you would not dare speak to that person or even look at that person because of how much you hate them and despise them for what they've done to you is us not responding to the love that God has given us. Reconciliation requires two people coming together. And I want to make this clear. If we are going to be reconciled, if I have been wronged, I must forgive. But in order to be reconciled, the person who has wronged me must repent. So I cannot in and of myself make reconciliation happen. Jesus did not make reconciliation happen. He made a pathway for reconciliation. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But if we are going to be reconciled with him, we must repent of our sins and accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Then we can be reconciled. So though I cannot make reconciliation happen, I am still expected, even required by God to do my part. So my forgiveness to the person who has wronged me is not about the person who has wronged me. My forgiveness is in obedience to what God has called me to. My repentance is not because the other person looks like they should be asked for forgiveness. My repentance is because I acknowledge that I have sinned against God. And I want to make sure that I stay in right relationship with him. It's the reason why David could say against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. I'm like, hold on, David. I think you sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah. I mean, the whole nation of Israel. I mean, just, just a few people come to mind. No, but David understood it's me and God. <clears throat> yes, I may need to repent to the people, but it's God who gave me the rules. And so my relationship with God informs the way that I relation with you. So because of who God is in my life and what he has done, I repent when I have wronged my brother. 
Because of who God is and what he has done, I forgive when I have been wronged by my brother. No matter the offense. And then we just go from, man, that's hard to, oh my goodness, is that even possible? I'm going to forgive my enemies. I know maybe at least one person, possibly two. Like, I don't know if I could forgive that person, though. And I get it. But if you stop and think about where Jesus found you. Hold it together, Michael. These are, these are the parts that always get me emotional, so I just need to call it out so that I don't cry because i got to make it through the end of this sermon. <clears throat> but when you think about it, doesn't it cause you to just well up just a little bit? Maybe weep just a hint? Because when I remember where he found me, <laughs> the fact that I'm even looking remotely close to clean, my children, when I share with them some things that were Michael of old, they can't even believe it. My adult daughters, they laugh at me when I speak the way that I used to speak. Or I, you know, just try and sound. <laughs> Papa, you don't even sound right. <laughs> I'm like, well, I used to sound that way. Like, but I'm, I'm good with that. I'm so far removed from it that it doesn't even sound right when I, when I pretend to be back. Not that I fully pretend to be back in that place, but you get what I'm saying. But when God cleaned me up, he changed me. When I think about that, what do I do for this person here? who really is only behaving like I was behaving before I came into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then somebody may say, but they know Jesus. Okay, noted. And let me ask you, can you remember the last time that you disobeyed the Lord? Was it on that day 50 years ago, 30 years ago, 20, 10 years ago when you got saved and you never, you never sinned again? Oh, that's not your story? Right, then go ahead and remove the beam before you start inspecting somebody else's speck. This is for all of us, and God requires it of us. Close out with 2 Corinthians. Some charges and challenges here for us to live out this word, just so we could understand that this is not old news. The Lord expects it of us today. We are called to be a people of reconciliation. A holy people living in righteous relationship are a people of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The Lord has saved us from our sins, and he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. What is this ministry? That we will let others know that Christ has paid the price, reconciling the world to himself. He did his part. He has paid the price for sin, and he has forgiven all 
who will repent and come to him so that you might accept or receive reconciliation. And this message, he says, now I have entrusted to you those who have come to Christ to let other people know this absolutely, ridiculously great, awesome, marvelous, use every adjective you could think of, news. Go and share it. People of God, it's the only reason why we're still here. I say it regularly and I'll keep repeating it. Listen, there's no place better than heaven. Wrap that around your mind. Let it sink into your head. There's nothing, nothing you could experience in this life that will come close to glory. So then if we understand this, when I gave my life to Christ, if he wanted to give me the best things in the, in the world right now, it's like, Lord, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Where's Michael? He was just gone. Went to heaven. No, but Jesus said, great, thank you, son. Now, as the Father has sent me, I send you. How the Father sends you, Jesus, with the ministry of reconciliation. I'm leaving you here so that you might let other people know that they have a love that is so mind-bogglingly good that they can't help but come in, that they can't help but be drawn in by the aroma of God's love. We're not here to try to make this world a taste of heaven on earth. You can't do it. And Jesus lets us know, in this life, trouble all day. But don't worry, I got you. You'll get peace through me. Now go live for me. Be a people of reconciliation. Because that's the ministry that Jesus has sent us with. But in order to share that ministry with others, we have to be willing to live that ministry out ourselves. So the challenge, people of God, what do you need to repent for where you're disobeying the word of God? You're speaking ill of a brother or sister or you're holding a grudge. What is it? Again, it's not the person. You need to repent first and foremost to God. And you know the wrong that you've done. I know you may not want to share it with me. And when we, when we sit down, you tell me all the good things in your life. How's everything going? Well, it's just good. You know, everything's fine. It's a great day. Meanwhile, you know, you just, hold on, just maybe five more seconds. Yeah, yeah, okay, bye, 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 and everything just falls over. You know your life is a mess. You're just packing it into the closet, hoping nobody sees it. I deal with that. You need to repent. God sees, he knows, he responds. This is no scared straight tactic. You need to read the Psalms. There's no place you can go to get away from the sight of God. You might fool me. You might fool your friend. You may fool your family. You might even be so far gone in that sin that you're fooling yourself. If that were possible, you will never fool God. And he will require of us our actions. There are some things we need to repent for. And there are also some things that we need to forgive. I know you were wronged. This is the part where I just want to take a moment and I really want to enter into this graciously. This is all informed by the love that we've received from a loving God. So allow me to, to bring my tone down a little bit. I know you've been wronged, and I believe that it hurts like nobody's business. And you're absolutely right 
that person for what they did. Brother or sister in Christ or enemy deserves a penalty that I couldn't even capture in words. But because of who Jesus is and what he has done for me, I'm going to respond to God rightly, even though that person may not deserve it. Now, just because I know that there's a myriad of things that we've experienced, I want to reiterate, reconciliation requires us to forgive. It also requires somebody else to repent. So I'm not telling you as you leave here forgiving somebody that you now need to go and make them your best friend, sit down, have a cup of coffee with them, and hang out and just catch up on old times. No. Your forgiveness of them is because of your response to God. If you are to be reconciled with them, they need to repent for some things. And let's just keep it real. Depending on how long they've been doing that sin, I mean, I'm going to forgive you and I accept your apology, but it's going to take a little bit of time before we rebuild that trust. If you stole my goat, I'm not going to ask you to goat sit for a few years. I'm just saying I appreciate you. Right? I appreciate you. But I'm not going to just give you these things when you demonstrate. You're going to have to show me. If you've talked to me about a few things over a little bit of time, you probably heard me say red, green, blue, red, green, blue, red, green, blue, red, green. I'm almost in love with this family because you actually, two people thought about and actually said something. And I think the rest of you actually, in your head, you said blue. I could see it just lift up the eyebrow a little bit. Red, green, blue, red, green. Right. See, because there's a pattern. So until you show me red, green, blue, red, green, blue, red, green, silver, it's like, well, why would I expect you to do something different? And then I need to make sure that that's not an anomaly. So I need to see red, green, silver, red, green, silver, red, green, silver for a little bit of time before I'm like, oh, okay, they didn't change around. Right? So forgiving someone doesn't mean that I ignore the patterns that I've seen. But in order to even become a people that come to a place of being able to reconcile, we have, that's the starting point. Forgiveness and repentance. And then as we continue to walk together, we can be restored in a righteous relationship that reflects the love of Jesus. Wouldn't it just be an example to the world to see a relationship that should be severed, but somehow is still held together? And you're thinking anybody else who would have gone through anything like that would have been done a long time ago. Why are the two of you still friends? Well, because Jesus. Think, wow, you forgave that person for that? No way. I couldn't admit. No, absolutely not. Well, see, there was this time where there was this cross, and then there was this grave, and then it was empty, and changed my life. And so I extend that which I received. And before we could extend that to the world, it needs to start in the home. I want to call the praise team up. We're going to do a few exercises here this morning, some spiritual exercises. I want you to really wrestle well, family, <clears throat> because we can't leave here holding the grudge. The hate that we harbor in our hearts only hurts us. It's punishing. It's destroying us. You can't experience the peace and the joy of the Lord holding on to hate. You can't. You can't. Not in the fullness that God intends. It may be a sprinkling, but it's not the fullness of joy. I don't want you to leave here with that. We can't afford to leave here with that. We need to forgive. <clears throat> and then I know, 
only because I've been in ministry for a long time. You all look great physically. But I can imagine with a room this size that there are at least a few in here that spiritually might be more like a whitewashed tomb. Look good on the outside, but death on the inside. You can't afford to leave here that way. And the Lord did not send us here today so that we can just walk through this and say, okay, wonderful work, great, good, now I'm gone. No, he brought us here today for something different. He brought us here today that we might experience the hope that only comes from remembering and experiencing a love that never lets go. Will we grab a hold of that? Will we grab a hold of that love? And will we make sure that we don't let that love let us go? Not that he ever will. So on this morning, who do you need to forgive? And what do you need to ask forgiveness of? It's less about severing your relationship with people. It starts with severing your relationship with God. And until our relationship is right with God, we can never have a right relationship with others. So we get it right with God. Then we get it right with each other. And then we can live out that love to others. So for a couple of minutes, you and Jesus, you could sit, kneel, stand, lay prostrate if you need to. But I'm serious. Romans 12, 1, present your body as a living sacrifice. Lay it all down on the altar. Don't leave here with any of it. Let him burn it all up so that he might lift you up and use you for his glory. And after those couple of moments, I want us to pray in a different way this morning, and then we'll sing a song of praise. But for the next couple of minutes, to the God who sees and knows the closet and everything else, it's just you and him. Make it personal.